Right. Good morning, everybody. New series in First Thessalonians, but first some context. Uh, roughly 2,000 years ago and roughly 50 years before the time of Jesus, Rome was in a state of panic because of screaming children that were so... <laughs> Don't feel embarrassed. I got the kids. We, 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 all the parents understand. Um, all the parents understand. Um, I'm in that phase, so it's just like your first instinct. There was someone else who was funny. Uh, last week, I was in the bathroom, and someone else's kid was crying, and it was just like instinct, like I thought it because whenever it's in your home, the usual, you think it's yours, so I just w- went out looking for my daughter, and it was, it was someone else's kid, someone else's kid, and I didn't care because it wasn't my kid. It just kept walking. Um, roughly 2,000 years ago, roughly 50 years before the time of Jesus, Rome was in a state of turmoil, chaos, and on the brink of civil war. Julius Caesar famously uh, defied orders by the Senate and took his 13th legion across the Rubicon River and marched into Rome. And basically, uh, through military victory and power and might, seized control, became the most powerful person in the Roman world. Now, uh, it wasn't very long before a plot to assassinate uh, Caesar took place, and eventually it was uh, successful. And that sent Rome back into turmoil and to chaos. And some time after that, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, rose to power. And to make a very long and complicated story short, as Octavian ended the civil wars and came to power, he essentially became Rome's first true emperor. He took upon uh, himself the name Augustus, which means the exalted one. So you may not be familiar with the name Octavian, but you're probably more familiar with the name Caesar Augustus. Caesar, the exalted one, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In the month of July, the year 44, Caesar Augustus was honoring his father, Julius Caesar, through traditional Roman games. And at these games, a comet appeared in the sky. And the eyewitnesses that were there all kind of coincidentally came together and said that that was no comet. That was indeed Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens to take his rightful place among the gods. Now, the reason why that's incredibly important is there's an implication of that. If Julius Caesar took his rightful place among the gods, that would mean his son, Caesar Augustus, is now the son of God on earth. Julius Caesar is in heaven, ascended as a god, and his son, Augustus, is on earth to rule and to reign. Now, the propaganda machine took this and spread it through the Roman Empire, through inscriptions, through statues, through all kinds of different things. A famous example is a statue that was built of Julius Caesar in a famous temple, and upon Julius Caesar's statue, at the bottom, it says, Dio Invictus, the unconquered God. So think about that. If Julius Caesar is now a God, the unconquered God in heaven, his son, who is here on earth, is more than just a man. It's more than just an emperor. There's some type of deity trapped inside of that. Augustus, shortly after all of this was taking place, would do a powerful, perform a powerful symbolic action that meant something in the ancient world. There was a famous place that was dedicated to the god Janus. And Janus was always depicted with two heads because Janus was the god of beginning and the god of ending, the god of peace, the god of war. 
And Janus had gates that were built to him. And the way these gates functioned were they were to remain open in times of war and they were to be closed in times of peace. Now, Rome, because of the political turmoil and chaos, those gates had been open for a very, very long time. So think about this. Think about like a symbolic kind of government structure that has symbolic value. And for your entire life, they communicate that your country is in war. And that's essentially what the gates of Janus were doing. They were telling Romans that Rome is currently at war, and they had been at war for decades. So some people in Rome had never seen the gates of Janus closed because Rome was either in a civil war or they were fighting some far-off battle to, to squell some rebellious people group on the corners of the empire. After Caesar Augustus gets the title of Son of God, the Exalted One, and sends that propaganda machine into the empire, he marches down to the gates of Janus and closes them, signaling that the Roman Empire has now brought peace to the entire world. If you're a history geek, you know the phrase Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is where it's birthed from, the same era. Augustus, the exalted one, the son of God on earth, is now the bringer of peace. He is the savior of the entire known world. This is the context the New Testament was written in. It's a world of, of empires and Caesars, a, a world of crowns and kings, a world of emperors and, and dictators and tyrants and military leaders. This is the world the New Testament was written in. Now, what's incredibly interesting is if you were a normal person in the Roman Empire, um, Caesar claiming to be God may rub you the wrong way, but it's technically not that big of a deal. The vast majority of ancient people, if, <coughs> if not 99% of them, <coughs> excuse me, uh, had tons of gods and goddesses. <clears throat> so to add another god or goddess to kind of your list, your checklist of things to pay homage to or worship really wasn't that big of a deal. And in fact, if you were being threatened with your life, it's like, hey, I got 54 gods. Caesar wants me to burn some incense for him on a national holiday. No big deal. There was one people group, however, who resisted this historically at all cost. And they are known as the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people, over and against the, the common pagan thought of the day, believed in one God. And this one God was not just God, he was the one true king of the entire world. Now he uh, was uh, allowing earthly kings to rule and to reign, but the Jewish worldview, the Jewish thought and idea was that even earthly kings are under the authority of the one true king. So if Caesar likes to call himself king of kings and lord of lords, the Jewish people would say, you're mistaken. Even your authority, Caesar, is a delegated authority. There is one true God king. It's not Julius and it's not Augustus. And this tradition is built into the scriptures, the Old Testament. And so I could, we could look over dozens and dozens and dozens of passages, but I just highlighted some from the Psalms. And the reason why I highlighted from the Psalms is because the book of the Psalms is a collection of songs, which means these, this is the music. These are the melodies. These are the words that are playing in Jewish people's hearts and minds throughout the day. There isn't Spotify, there isn't Apple Music, there isn't a huge selection of music to choose from. You kind of had your folk songs and then you had the Psalms. And these are what you have memorized, ingrained in your brain since an early age. Psalm 47.2 says, For the Lord, all in caps, that means this is in Hebrew, 
the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. For the Lord, Yahweh, the Most High, he is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 24.8, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Psalm 47, 7 through 8, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Do you see this, this idea? It's not just like God is the God of Israel. That's true, but he is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's over it all. All other authority gets their authority from him. This idea of kingship is essential to kind of the Jewish worldview, the way Jews traditionally perceived the world. Because of this, they are the people group historically that stubbornly persist emperors claiming to be God kings. Or emperors, maybe they don't even claim to be a god, but they came, claim to be a king that has sovereignty in some type of way that crosses the line into what God and God alone has. And so there's stories, uh, probably the most famous time of defiance for the Jewish people leading up to this moment in history is the Maccabean Revolt. This is where we get our story Hanukkah. We're not going to get into that, but essentially there is this idea that Jewish people believe there is one God and he's the one true king. The hope in Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is the one true God, and he is our God, and we belong to him. Therefore, we bow and worship no one else but him. And the Jewish people were persecuted and suffered many things because of that claim. Now, inside of the scriptures that the Jewish people followed in the Old Testament, there was this idea that this king, their God, would come somehow and definitively and climactically save them, save them from their enemies, defeat evil, and usher in a true peace. Not a fake peace like Pax Romana where all, they, they do it by force and through the sword, but that God himself would come and bring peace to the world. And so there was this longing that God, the King of Israel, would come and restore peace and justice. Now this gets us into the greatest plot twist um, probably in all history and in all literature, but it takes place historically. The greatest plot twist is that when the king finally did come, very few people knew it. When the king of kings and lord of lords came, he didn't come like Caesar with massive parades and spectacle and show. He came so humbly that the vast majority of people missed it. And in Jerusalem, the very city of God, they not only missed it, they were partakers in the very murder of this king. And so John, uh, one of the first followers of Jesus, a leader in the early church, records what happens at the end of the life of Jesus when he is on trial. He says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing, to, 
bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now you have to picture this scene. The hope of the world, the hope of Israel, is now on trial. It's on trial before Roman authorities. Israel believed that all other authority was a delegated authority, that there was one true king over it all, and now the Son of God is on trial before Roman authorities, and he's been handed over by his very people that he's come to save. And Jesus at this point is, is beaten and battered beyond recognition. The prophet Isaiah tells us that at this point, the question isn't when you look upon this person, um, who is he? It's not that he's so beaten and battered that you don't recognize him. It's more of a question of like, what is it? He is so disfigured from the beating and torture that the question is, is this even human? And he's standing arrayed in what? A crown and a purple robe representing authority. And all the images and thoughts from the Old Testament are coming crashing in on this one person. And the Jews answered Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He made himself to be the son of God. Now, if you grew up in Christian circles, you immediately think son of God means he's He's like, he's God, he has deity, he's, he's divine. And yes, all of that's true, but more so in the Roman world of the first century, son of God is a term reserved for the king, the emperor. This is a politically charged and politically loaded statement. If, if they would have said, he claims to be a prophet, or he, he doesn't obey our religious law, Pilate would have said, who cares? In fact, in the story, Pilate tries to actually get people to change their mind about Jesus. No big deal to claim a prophet or break some religious law, but it's when he says the Son of God that Pilate himself becomes afraid. Now, quick note before we move forward. Uh, in John and in a lot of the, the books of the New Testament, it'll talk about the Jews answering somebody. It's important to note, just because of the climate we live in, that when the Bible talks about the Jews, they are talking about a particular group of Jews Sometimes verses like this have been used, unfortunately, historically for anti-Semitism, like the Jews were the people who killed Jesus. No, Jesus is Jewish. All the disciples are Jewish. The first followers of Jesus are Jewish. If you're a Christian, you worship a Jewish man. You can't be anti-Semitic. But there's a group of Jews in the text that are partaking in this evil, but there's also groups of Jews who come to know this Jesus. So you have to differentiate and not impose a kind of modern reading of the text upon an ancient one. <clears throat> then the climax. climax. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, a day historically celebrating a time in the past where God delivered his people from oppression. Second line, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest, representing the religious establishment, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to be crucified. You see that gut-wrenching, soul-piercing plot twist? The very people who had stubbornly and persistently, consistently waited for the one true king, when he finally showed up, many of them missed it. Many of them even were participants in his murder. And as he's standing, arrayed in purple robe and crown of thorns, they declare, we have no king but Caesar. Now, the Christian claim, and what the first followers of Jesus claimed, was that Jesus was indeed crucified and he was killed, but he remained in the grave for three days, and on the third day he rose again. After his resurrection, he taught and taught taught the disciples about the kingdom and what they should do from there. And after that was done, Jesus did something. He ascends into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father to now rule and reign as king. Jesus says at the ending of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So the first followers of Jesus didn't just stay in Jerusalem, they didn't even stay in Israel. They went into the whole Roman Empire declaring that there is a newly installed king. This newly installed king is the world's rightful king, the world's rightful Lord, and if you bow the knee in repentance, you can have forgiveness of sins. You too can be saved. Saved from what? Something we don't like talking about, wrath. Because there's a day where this king is going to come back and finally do justice. And the good news is, is that'll be no more suffering, no more pain. The bad news is, is when you're honest with yourself, you know you've been an active participant in the disruption of God's good creation. And so they went out proclaiming this news all throughout the Roman Empire. And we get this recording of how they're doing that in the book of Acts. And in particular, the book of Acts chapter 17, which is finally going to where we're going for the rest of the seven weeks in this series, they make their way down to a city called Thessalonica, the place where Paul, the apostle, another leader in the early church, would write his epistle, 1 Thessalonians. I want to read to you what occurs when Paul, the apostle, And some missionaries make it to the city, Thessalonica, for the very first time. And when they start preaching the gospel, what occurs? Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through, these are always those weird names that are, you just kind of skip over when you're reading the Bible in your head, but you have to pronounce out loud. Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbaths day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what does Paul do? He does what he normally does. He goes into a new city, and he goes to the place where he thinks he's most likely to find people who might believe in Jesus. And that first place is always the synagogue, where Jews are. Why? Because they know the Old Testament, and they've been reading it. The twist that Paul has to show them is that even in the Old Testament, there's, idea, there's this idea that the coming king would have to suffer. And so that's what he does. For three Sabbaths, he reasons with them, saying, look, the scripture's saying that when our king would finally come, he would suffer and die. 
And then the last line of this, he says, I proclaim to you that this Jesus, whom was crucified under Pontius Pilate, is the Christ. Now, you've got to understand Christ, and we've talked about this. Christ is a title. It's not a name. It's not the last name of Jesus. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. This means the anointed one, the anointed king. What is Jesus proclaiming to these people? Jesus is the world's rightful and true king. Christos is the king. Christos comes from the line of David, King David. It's about who is the rightful king. If we had more time, we'd show a clip from the greatest cinematic masterpiece in movie history. What? Not Nacho Libre. That's second. (laughs) Return of the King. Lord of the Rings. And there's this awesome scene where Aragorn basically travels and he has to cross through this cave and there's the army of the undead. And the army of the undead always kills anyone that enters. But there's a chance that the one who is the rightful king can, can basically free them from being the army of the dead. And there's this awesome scene where like the king of the army of the dead comes to attack Aragorn and Aragorn like holds out his sword to a ghost and that the sword just stops. He says some awesome line like, you shall suffer me. And then you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is about who is the rightful king of the world. I proclaim to you, Jesus is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. It's an interesting phrase. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, and some of the Greeks, the Gentiles, and a few of the leading women are not a few. It means a kind of a good amount. But the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason is probably some guy that's letting the the missionaries stay with him. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city and authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now pay close attention. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. However, the early church and the first followers of Jesus were preaching the gospel. However, they were giving that message, the people in the Roman world were hearing this Jesus is the one true king. And if Jesus is the one true king, that is a threat to Caesar. Now, why is this important? We can talk about this forever. the Christian message had real-world implications for the empire. The Christian message, when properly preached, when properly taught, has real-world effects. It is not this, like, private spirituality that you keep in your heart and kind of warms you up and cheers you up every day, although that may be true. It's not just that, and it can't only just be that. The Christian message is always a threat to evil and its status quo. 
It, it, it disrupts the social order. By the way, these Christians are not being threatened because, you know, they, they had some private faith. Rome was actually very tolerant of other religions. You can believe in anything you want in Rome. Worship whatever you want. What they hated were statements like, Jesus is the one true Lord, because that meant Caesar was not. And what they really, really hated was any type of new religious system that would disrupt the social order. And so Christians got in trouble, and the accusation was always that they're, they're running things amok. They're, they're causing disruption. Look at the accusation. They're turning the world upside down. When Christians face persecution, it's usually not because they believe in Jesus. When Christians face persecution, it's because what they believe about this Jesus has real-world implications, and the powers that be do not like those implications. And so the accusation will usually be that these Christians are somehow disrupting or harming social order. Now think about that. Think about where we're at. Think about where culture's at. What you might face, and I, I don't play like, a lot of people act like Christians are super persecuted here. We have a persecution comp, but we don't know. Things have been better here for, to be a Christian, but tr trust me, we're not, we're not facing real life biblical persecution yet. Maybe a few people here and there, but on the whole, but we're at a critical point. And trust me on this, the way they'll go after you is not, hey, we don't mind that you believe in Jesus. It'll be when your faith in Jesus has something to say about the social order and culture. And then you'll be a disruptor of the status quo. You can think about how that's playing out right now and how things can change in a matter of five to ten years. All of this gets us to the context of the beginning of the first book of First Thessalonians. And we're not going to dive into it today. Hopefully, you're in a small group. If you're not in a small group, you're going to dig into the first 10 verses this week. I'm just going to read them to you and highlight one line. But I, I want to set the stage and paint the picture that Paul's letter to the First Thessalonians is taking place in this context, a world of kings and Caesars, emperors and tyrants. It's taking place... Shortly after this first persecution breaks out, Paul and his, his associates leave, and he's writing to the people of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, and he's writing to them, telling them to stay faithful in the midst of affliction and persecution. And he's writing them to tell them, in this world, you will have affliction, but wait for the sun. Wait for the real king. Wait for the world's rightful, true Lord, because he's coming again. All of this shapes the next seven weeks. Briefly, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now stop, uh, this phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. We've just been so accustomed to it. We say, Lord Jesus Christ, no problems. But again, Paul exists in a partially Jewish world and a partially Roman world. The Greek word Lord here is kurios. And kurios is the word that's used um, in the Hebrew Old Testament when it's translated into Greek for Yahweh. 
Now, that's a complicated way of saying that when a Jewish person hears kurios, and they've grown up reading the Greek translation, with the, which the mass, vast majority of them had, kurios is identified with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. They're picking that word. That's in the Jewish world. In the Greco-Roman world, kurios is usually used for someone else. And take a wild guess who loved that title. Caesar. Caesar is the kurios of kurios. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So you have to understand what Paul is saying and doing here. This is more than risky business. Who's Jesus? He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the world's rightful Lord and King. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thessalonians are doing pretty good. Paul's happy. He's remembering them. He's thankful for them. He knows their afflictions and they're persecuted, but they're a faithful church. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I underline this this portion. And you became imitators of us and the Lord. In other words, you're becoming more like Jesus. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became examples to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You get that kind of tension? They received the gospel in much affliction, but also with much joy in the Holy Spirit. How many modern people have been convinced that joy comes when your life gets easier? That when life is easier, it's somehow better. It's not necessarily true. Somehow these people, in their affliction, have the joy of the Holy Spirit. For not only the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'm just zooming in now on that that last section. For they themselves report concerning you the kind of reception we had among you. Here's the important part. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians have turned from idols. Now, you got to understand, like, in in one sense, idols are just like little statues that stand in place for gods. But in the first century Roman world, the, the paganism of the day is integrated with every facet and component of life, especially the social life. The jobs, there was guilds that were associated with gods. The government buildings were associated with pagan gods. So, your father's house had a special God. Everywhere had gods and goddesses, and they all had a unique place in the social structure of life. So, when Paul says you've turned from idols, it doesn't just mean like, oh, you got rid of the little statue in in your room. You are turning your back on the very system that holds that pagan culture together. And that might cost you something. If you were one of the first Christians, it would for sure cost you friends. It would probably cost you family. 
It might cost you your job because maybe your job you had to burn incense to Athena every morning as a part of the process. Now think about that. Let's say you're a 32-year-old man and you have three or four kids. You become a Christian, then you go to work the next day. Do you bow to the same statue to keep your job? Do you burn incense to the same statue to keep your job? You start picturing your kids being beggars because dad doesn't have a job. Your father disowning you, which in that culture meant more than it does today. I mean, think about what these Thessalonians are wrestling with. When you turn your back on those idols, it's more than just some simple action. It's turning your back on a former lifestyle in every sense of the word. And Paul says, when you do that, things are going to get rough, but this is what you must do. You wait for his son. You wait for the real son of God, the real king, the real Lord. You wait for his son knowing that one day he's going to come to fix this mess and you will be saved from the justice that he brings. This is the, the blessed Christian hope. Wait patiently, endure patiently, and wait for the Son. Wait for Jesus. Now, for the, these first Christians in Thessal, Thessal, Thessalonica, uh, there was an immediate, and you can see this like cost-benefit situation going on. Like, it would cost you something to become a Christian. It would cost you something uh, significant. Maybe friends, family, maybe job, maybe worse. It cost you something, but they believed in the benefits of it. The benefit of knowing Jesus, the benefit of promised uh, heaven, the benefit of true meaning and purpose, the benefit of forgiveness of sins, the benefit of loving God and being loved by God. That benefit outweighed the cost. And Jesus actually says it like this, before you go to war, count the cost. Now here's where all of this kind of come home, comes home for us today, is the Thessalonians counted the cost and they said Jesus is worth it. We want to know and worship the true king. The problem with the majority, and it's not all, and it's not 100% true for everybody, it's always a mix, we always have different motivations, but the problem with the majority of modern American Christianity is that we want all the benefits of knowing Jesus without any of the cost. We want to know that we're going to go to heaven one day, but we don't want to carry a cross. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have affliction. You think about how the gospel message is primarily preached. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Do you know there's a way that you can know for certain you're going to go to heaven? Accept Jesus and you will go. Now, all of that's true, but it's missing some vital components, right? Like, he died because of your sin. And he's coming back one day to judge the world. Repent. And so what we do is we emphasize all the benefits and never the cost, right? That's how we present the gospel. That's how we do Christianity now. It's all benefits and no cost. The majority of us, and certainly the majority of people who claim to be Christians in, in kind of the modern American sense, we want a savior that we don't have to obey. We don't want a king. We want a savior that we do not have to obey and we don't want a king. 
want Jesus to save us and forgive us and to love us and to give us a better life, to give us meaning and purpose, and to know that we'll go to heaven one day. But we don't want him as king. Because when Christ is king, the implication is you have to obey. We just don't want that. And there's different levels of it, too. I mean, some of us, you're going like, yeah, that, that's me. And I'm saying that, that's partially all of us, but it's to different degrees, you know? And Jesus says, you, you don't get it like that. I'm Lord. I'm King. If you're not willing to take up your cross daily and follow me, you're unworthy of me. Think about where Christianity is. The second a Christian teaching is not cool with the culture, we abandon it. Seriously. I mean, we could talk about tons of things, but just in the last 20 or 30 years with sexual ethics, the second something is not cool or in, 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 in the kind of modern opinions of the world, it's like we change our minds on things because we'd rather be cool and accepted than faithful. The second, um, identifying as a Christian may cause you some social problems at work. You know, we, we, we begin to keep quiet about Jesus. We've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Um, the first Christians were not fed to lions and nailed to crosses because they accepted Jesus into their heart as personal Savior. They were nailed to crosses and fed to lions because they accepted Jesus as Savior, but they also publicly proclaimed him as king and told the powers that be, no matter what you say, even your authority is a delegated authority. And that'll get you in trouble. Now, there's this balance you have to find in all of this. It's like walking a tightrope. It's very difficult. Um, Jesus is Savior, and he gives us grace, but he's also king and tells us how to live. So you have to be able to balance Jesus being both king and savior, Lord and savior, and you have to be able to, to have a healthy balance of grace, knowing that God has given you grace freely, and also be able to balance, yes, he's given me grace freely, but once he's saved me, he's my king, and he tells me how I ought to live. So I, I highlighted two verses that kind of draw this together, and they, they hold this tension right, right next to each other. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, one of the most famous Bible verses in Scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. If you're a Christian, how did you get saved? What did you do? Nothing. You did nothing. God found you, and he saved you. He changed you. He gave you grace. When you didn't deserve it, he just loves you and he gives it to you. It's in his character and his nature to be gracious and loving, free grace. You do nothing to get it. You can't be a good person. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good things. You get it for free. But when God's grace truly gets a hold of you, the Bible says that you have a heart change. Something inside of you changes and that grace changes how you want to live. And you don't obey Jesus because you have to in order to be saved, but you obey Jesus because your desires have actually been changed. You want to obey him. Doesn't mean you always do it. No one's perfect. So that's sinful nature. But your desires change. So in one sense, I can look someone straight in the eyes, and you can look someone straight in the eyes and say, 
You are saved and a Christian because of nothing you've done, God's free grace. And while I say that, the Christian has to simultaneously ask the question, how do I know that I receive grace? How do I know that I love him? It's actually quite simple. It's scary. It's quite, but Jesus tells us specifically in more than one place, but I found the shortest way to say it. This is Jesus, John 14. If you love me, you keep my commands. If you love me, you keep my commands. How do you know grace has changed you? You keep his commands. Now again, depending upon your personality, you're going, oh, that's great, because I, I always try to keep God's commands. And some of you, you're actually pretty good at keeping them, but you're immediately like you have a sense of guilt and shame. Oh my goodness, I didn't even keep them this morning. Am I not a Christian? This... The Bible knows full well that you sin every day. In fact, Jesus and John, who records this, talks about what you do when, you, when you, you sin and mess up. You confess, you go to God, you do all the things. So it's not saying you have to be perfect, but it's talking about a desire of your heart. If you are a Christian, you want to serve your king. Doesn't mean you do it all the time. Doesn't mean you want to do it all the time. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but you have a desire to do him right. You have a desire to serve him. When it's my anniversary, I don't go, oh no, it's my anniversary, uh, I have to do something for my wife. It's my joy, because I love her, because I'm married to her. But God knows and she knows I'm not a perfect husband, I mess up all the time. But I have a desire, my heart has been changed to serve her. You have been saved by grace, but that grace does something to you and your desires ought to change. If you love me, you keep my commands. Now, all of this is trying to, again, walk this tightrope of Savior and King, grace and works. And here at South Valley, like on everything we print, and it's on our website, on the handouts, everything, we say we're gospel-centered and mission-focused. And that is exactly what I'm trying to get at. We're gospel-centered in knowing that God has given us grace freely. We've done nothing to do it. But once he saved us, he also says, I'm your king, and I have work for you to do. I have a mission for you. You have purpose and meaning and something to do here. And it's difficult. Again, we've talked about this in the past, but like we live in a culture where if the president says something, like you can openly like mock it and no one's going to do anything to you. Like you can get away with anything. Like, like it's almost cool. If a, if, if a Democrat's in office, it's cool for a Republican to mock them. If it's the other way around, it's cool for the other people. It's just like normal. It's the American way. We just do it. That is a foreign idea to the Bible. If the king says jump, you say, how high? You don't get to be like, not my king. You don't get to do that. Or you die type of thing. And so Jesus is a savior and he's shown you grace, but he's also your king and he has demands. He has demands of the world. And the church is the people on earth who's supposed to live that out. Gospel, mission, grace, works, king, savior. All of those things working hand in hand. So this is going to be the massive kind of theme going throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to a church that he knows and loves, that he helps start. But because of persecution, he is left to preach the gospel in other places. But he's hearing about the Thessalonians still facing persecution. Why? Because they're saying there's another king. 
named Jesus and their social and political implications of that. And Paul is writing to encourage them and to give them hope. But most importantly, he's writing to them to say, you've turned from idols. Wait for his son. Wait for the real son of God who ascended into the sky, who now sits at the right hand of the father in power and glory. He's coming back. The, coming back. the real king will return. And that's incredibly relevant for us. Why? Not because I think like we're in Thessalonians and we're all going to get hunted down. But I could tell you in maybe 20 years it could be like that. I could tell you maybe less. We're at a critical time culturally. Not just for Americans, but like Western civilization in my mind. And how we navigate these waters will, will tell the, the story of the future. And Christians need the biblical wisdom especially wisdom of First Thessalonians on how to live that life and navigate through those waters. So the worship team is going to come up and um, we're going to sing a song. It's one of my favorite worship songs. Um, but it focuses on something that unfortunately is not talked about in worship music very much. It, it talks about the return of Jesus. The early Christian hope was Jesus is coming again. Our king will come back to claim us as his own. And in the midst of whatever you're going through, whether you're in a good time in life or a bad time in life, it is not as good as the return of Jesus. So if your life is great, it can't compare to how good it is when Jesus is going to come back. And so you should long for the coming of the king. And if your life is horrible right now, you're in a miserable state of affliction and suffering, you cling to the hope that this is temporary. It's not permanent. My king is coming back. He's going to claim me as his own, and I will live with him forever. The early Christian hope was the return of Jesus. And it's a shame that we only have one or two, three worship songs that cling to that hope. So as we cling to this hope, I want to ask you a question you could take with you. What in your life right now, maybe are you not being obedient to the king? Is there something specific that you could think of? Where you, I'm not talking about like necessarily something super big or life-changing. could be that, but I mean just simple. What's something you know the Bible commands you to do that you're not doing and you know better? Cling to the hope of Jesus' return and ask him to work in you right now, in these next few moments, to bring about conviction and power to start doing what he's told you to do in that area. Pretty simple task, but as you know, the most simple tasks are the hardest to actually do. How can you be more obedient to the king today? And how can you change your heart and fix your emotions to be fixed upon his return? Father God, um, we thank you for this book. I pray for the next seven weeks as we journey through it. I pray that we would all have wisdom as we work through it and that you would convict our hearts, each one of us, differently for how this book might be speaking to us. May we be found faithful. May this church be found faithful um, and obedient to the one true king of the world. Um, we love you because you're not just a king who tells us what to do, but you're a king who died in order that we might be saved. And so we lift the name of Jesus high in these moments. Amen.